I hope you don't mind me taking a minute or two sometimes with our kids just to let them know how much we love them and maybe just give them a tiny little illustration of something God may want to do in their lives and maybe in our own lives as we talk together. I'm going to ask you to take your Bible this morning, and we read together Ephesians chapter 5, and we've been in the book of Ephesians now for numbers of weeks together. I'm actually going to ask you to take your Bible this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. And for those of you that are joining us and have come to be a part of our worship today, let me just take a minute to kind of bring you into the conversation that we've been having out of Ephesians chapter 5. We have been talking about an incredible thing that God has chosen to display in his people. And that is a shalom, a peace that he made through his son, Jesus Christ. It is an eternal peace. It is an ever-present peace because it rests in the life of the peacemaker. And that peacemaker has eternal life. He is at the right hand of the Father, and he is interceding for us even as we speak this morning. And God has, through the ministry of his son, Jesus Christ, established a peace that will be one day visible to everybody on the earth because his son will rule over the earth in righteousness and in peace. In other words, we could say it this way, there's coming a day where everything will be as it should be. But there is an outpost of that peace now. There is a place and there is a group of people who already experienced that peace and have been given everything they need to display that peace in their lives and in their relationships. And those people are the church. We are a local expression of this amazing group of people that God has called out of darkness into the light of his glorious truth. And we belong to his son. His son is our leader. And we relate to the father by means of the son. And the son sent a spirit, the third member of the Trinity, to indwell us so that we would be enlightened, so that we would know what to do, and enabled so that we would be strengthened to do what the Spirit of God has helped us to understand. And when we get to the end of Ephesians chapter 5, we start a discussion on what the households that are governed by believers ought to look like. They ought to be little outposts of shalom in the communities where God has put them. So in other words, we could say it this way, every one of us has a family. You say, well, I'm not a husband, I'm not a wife, but all of us are a family. We're a big family and we're all part of little families and we're all units and God has placed us within a 30-minute drive of here. Most of you live in that circle and God has placed you where he has placed you because he intends for you and for the relationships in your home to be a display of the power of the gospel to bring about shalom. And we noted that there is one person who has the ability to use their power and their authority in ways that make it easy for the rest of the people in that household to enjoy the full blessing of God and to display the shalom that we're talking about. And that person is the leader. He's the husband. He's the father. He's the master. We talked about how a Roman Greek 
home had those relationships. There was a marriage, so there was a husband and a wife. There was a family, so there was a father and children. And generally, the way the business uh, model worked in ancient Roman Greece, many of the households were actually business units, and there were servants that worked for the household. And so this man, this husband, this father was also the master. And he had unbelievable power and unbelievable authority. And we spent time looking at that. And now we've come to a section in the book where God is going to spend a lot of time talking to the entire household, but a lot of time talking to that one individual and saying, if you want your household to be a display of shalom, you are going to have to use your power and your authority in a certain way. You're going to have to use it to serve everybody in your household. You're going to have to live in such a way that you create an atmosphere in your household by the way that you live, by the way that you love, and by the way that you lead. And so last Sunday, we looked at the Apostle Paul's instruction to this man with relationship to the primary relationship in his household, and that was the relationship that he shared with his wife. And, and Paul says to him in Ephesians chapter 5, if you are going to display shalom in your home, and, and you're going to do what God has called you to do in your position with your authority, you are going to have to love your wife. And we spent all of last Sunday talking about what that actually looked like in the economy of Rome or Greece and particularly at Ephesus. And then we made some application to our own life. So that's kind of catching you up. The notes to all of that, including our sermon this morning, are always online. You're welcome to go and follow along. There's, they're posted there for you to do that. You can certainly go back and listen to any of the messages that we've had together. So this morning, I want to go to uh, two other portions of Scripture where Paul and Peter give additional information to the husband. So I've called this Wisdom for Husbands, the rest of the story, part two. And we could say it this way. Last time we were together, we looked at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33, and we could sum it all up this way. We, we could say the Apostle Paul is looking at every husband, and he is saying to every husband, you need to love your wife, and it needs to look like this. It needs to be selfless, and it needs to be sacrificial. You need to love your wife in a way where she feels that you are loving her joyfully as you sacrifice and you give of yourself to her. Now there's a reason that this portion of scripture is included in the book of Ephesians and that is this, God wants every single one of us to know what he is saying to the husbands and to the fathers and to the heads of the home. Paul could have easily said, okay, we're going to have a special session just for dads. We're going to have another session just for husbands. We're going to have another one for wives. We're going to have another one for children. And then we're going to have another one for servants. But he doesn't do that. He brings it all together and he tells everybody the same information at the same time. And part of the reason for that is we are called in Galatians to bear one another's So we all have a responsibility to help one another do whatever Paul is calling husbands to do. 
And the first thing he says is, love her selflessly and sacrificially. We can put it this way. You know, if you had the opportunity to sit down with Paul or with Peter and have a conversation with them about your marriage and ask them, so Paul or Peter, could you give me, in a nutshell, what I need to do as a husband to please God in my marriage, they would sit down with you and this is exactly what they would tell you. They would do it perhaps over a cup of coffee or in a, com- in a, in a conversational way, but what we're talking about last Sunday and this is exactly what Peter and exactly what Paul would say to you if you had an opportunity to sit down with them and have a really serious conversation about your marriage. And Paul would say, love her selflessly and sacrificially out of Ephesians chapter 5, but in Colossians chapter 3 verse 19, he would have another thing to say to you as a husband. He would say this, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Love your wives willingly and joyfully. Love your wives willingly and joyfully. Do not become bitter or harsh as you do life with her. The word harsh is the word bitter. And it has the idea of something that is sour or distasteful. It's it's something that you put in your mouth and you expected a certain taste and you got something completely different. And, and your mouth sort of puckers up and, and it isn't what you were expecting and it isn't really what you wanted. And so it's bitter, it's harsh. And, and in many occasions you do what you can to sort of in, in a diplomatic or, or in some dignified way, take whatever is in your mouth that has this unexpected taste out. And, and Paul is saying, He's giving a warning to every husband that there is a real danger that can happen as we do life together over a period of time with this person that God has brought into our life. We can, and we can experience over time a taste that we didn't anticipate or that we don't like. And as we experience that taste, as, as life unfolds differently with this person than what we anticipated or what we expected, Paul says there is a very real danger that can come into the heart of a husband, and that is it can become sour. It can become bitter. Now, Paul does not give any reasons There's no reasons for this. Why do men become bitter toward their wife? Now, I am moving through our PowerPoint, and and, uh, I, I think I'm a little behind. So if you're running our PowerPoint, jump to point number two in the uh, PowerPoint outline, main point number two, and we're talking now about the reasons why men become bitter to their wives. And we'll give our PowerPoint team, a little time to catch up here, but I want you to be following along and not be distracted, and it's not their fault. I jumped over a huge section just for time's sake this morning. Why do men become bitter toward their wives? And the answer is this. Paul doesn't tell us. There are no reasons that Paul articulates in in Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. He just warns us as men that there's a very real possibility. 
I want to give you my perspective on why this happens. I don't think that Paul listed anything there because he doesn't want us to focus on reasons as an excuse for why it happens. He wants to let us know that there is a real danger in our marriages as life unfolds in ways we didn't anticipate or, or the person we married didn't meet expectations, however unrealistic they might have been, and we end up with a heart that is jaded, distant, disengaged, because it's bitter. It's not what we expected. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter two and three, which is where Paul took us back in Ephesians chapter five, he takes us back to the original story of marriage. And by the time you get to chapter three, that story has been disrupted. It's been disrupted by sin and it's been disrupted by the fall. And after God forgave Adam and Eve, and after he restored them, he had a very, very frank and open talk with both of them about what it was going to be like now in their relationship. And and he looked at Adam and Eve, and he said two things. He said about Eve, Eve, your desire is going to be for your husband. Your desire is going to be for your husband. And then he looked at Adam and he warned Adam that he was going to rule over Eve. And you can go back in that passage and you can say, okay, this is the design that God had. And I I don't know that that's exactly what God's trying to communicate in that passage. I think he's trying to warn Adam and Eve of what to expect in a post-fall world. And the word for rule that he uses and the word for have desire is the idea that, that Eve, you, you're, because of the fall and because of sin, you are going to have a tendency to want to rule over Adam in ways that I did not intend. Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve existed in a perfect environment and in a perfect relationship and Eve was fully supportive of Adam's leadership in her life. And and God is saying to her, Eve, that is going to be hard for you now. And then he looks at Adam and he said, Adam, in the garden before all of this happened, you were a loving, supportive, serving leader over Eve, and now it's going to be very, very difficult for you. You are going to want to dominate her in ways that are not appropriate. You're going to want to use your position and your power in ways that do not serve her. And the symbol of all of this, the universal symbol of all of this that God gave to remind all of us that we live in a world that isn't working the way God designed it is thorns. Thorns are there to help us remember that life is hard, it is painful, it doesn't always produce what we want it to produce, it demands unusual labor and painful labor to produce, and that's not just when you go out and plow your field and and reap a harvest, that's in every area of life. And that was going to be true until one day an anointed champion would come 
and take away all of that pain and all of that brokenness. And the symbol of that happening was what he would wear on his head. And so you'll remember when Jesus went to the cross, he wore a crown made of what? Thorns. Indicating that all of this brokenness has been dealt with. It's all been dealt with. And one day it will all be removed. But now for a group of people who have been made right with God, it is possible to go back to the relationships that God intended to happen. And the spirit of God is giving us wisdom. And Paul says to men, you need to be careful that you do not become bitter against your wife. You are to love her with a joyful and willing heart just as Christ continues to love you. When you are not what you should be, just like he continues to have ongoing joyful delight when he encounters you even in your brokenness, just as you receive ongoing mercy from him coming out of a heart that never abates in its love for you and in its care for you. God is always joyfully excited about loving you. And Paul says to husbands, it's not just that you're to love your wife selflessly and sacrificially, you are to love her joyfully and willingly. And that brings us then to the passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter joins in the conversation now, and he gives us the third and final piece of advice. And I'm using the word advice advisedly, it actually is a command. And it is how we are to navigate life. We are to love our wife selflessly and sacrificially. We are to do so joyfully and willingly. But in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, we are to do so graciously and considerately. So let me read the text, and then let's look at it together. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers be not hindered. So maybe the best way to look at this text is to ask some questions and let Peter answer them. And the first question I have as a husband, and I had it as I was looking at this text, is this, Peter, what exactly am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? And Peter said, uh, you're to do this. You're to live with your wife. That's more than just sharing an address together. It's, it's the idea of living out your daily life together, unfolding life, doing life together, intentionally and thoughtfully. That's the idea. Paul says, or Peter says, all right, if you really want to know what you're supposed to do, here's where it starts. You live together with your wife. You, you do life together thoughtfully, intentionally, in, in a certain kind of way. You live intentionally and thoughtfully with this incredible image bearer that I brought into your life in an understanding way. There's something that God wants me to know And he wants every man in this room to know and every husband to know about our wives. There is a specific thing that God wants me to understand. This is more than just reading a book about women or about wives and their needs. And and there are some very helpful ones out there. 
This is not just knowing her likes and her dislikes and her favorite food and what kind of clothes she likes when she goes clothes shopping. It's more than just understanding her need for communication and her unique love language or whatever, however you think about those things. All of that's helpful. It may be useful. It can certainly make interesting discussion between the two of you, but that's not what Peter has in mind when he says to a husband, there is a certain understanding I want you to have about your wife. And, and if you're going to live with her thoughtfully and intentionally, you have to live with her in light of this understanding. So what is the understanding that I'm supposed to have? I'm supposed to live with my wife in a way that reflects a certain understanding. So what is the thing, what is the knowledge that God wants me to understand? And it's in that text. Husband, live with your wife in an understanding way. What is the way? What is the the understanding showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel? All right, can I put the sermon on pause here? Can I stop talking to the husbands for a second and talk to the wives? Are you okay with that? I'm going to do it anyway, but I'm just asking. How many of you wives have heard all of your life that you are the weaker vessel? Can I see your hands? Just hold your hand up high. Okay. How does that make you feel? How does that make you feel? Husbands, if we reverse that, and this text were actually saying that about us, how would we feel? So I want to put this in context. I want to let that uncomfortable question sit for just a minute. Because I personally believe that we have come to some wrong views about what that weakness is, and that's what makes it so uncomfortable for all of our sisters in Christ. So I want to think about that with you a little bit this morning, if we can. So let's, let's talk about this. Peter says, look, here's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to live with your wife in an understanding way. There's a certain understanding I want you to have about your wife. Okay, what is it? And, and, and Peter starts off by telling me what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to show honor. Okay, why? Because here's the understanding I want you to have. She is a weaker vessel. So there, there's a reality that that Peter talks about. And I think all of us would would acknowledge that whatever this is, if God put it in our Bible, it's true. Can we agree with that? We don't know what it is yet, but can we agree ahead of time that whatever Peter is talking about is actually true? Are we good with that? All right. So there's a reality here. Peter says, now look, I want you to understand something about your wife. She is a vessel, and the thing I would, the word I want you to think about when you think about the word vessel in terms of her is the word weaker. Now, what is the nature of that weakness? Let me, let me, again, I'm giving you my opinion here, and I'm obligated to tell you my, when I'm giving you opinion because you don't have to buy my opinions. You do have to buy the biblical text, but you don't have to buy my opinion. But, but here's what I want you to think about. Whatever this weakness is, it is not moral. This is not moral. Whatever Peter wants a husband to know is, is not that your wife is morally weaker than you. She is not mentally weaker than you. She is not spiritually weaker than you. She doesn't have less value than you. 
Whatever this weakness is, it has nothing to do with her moral standing, her mental ability, her spiritual value, and her importance to God and to you. In fact, I would argue that for most of us, our wives are smarter. In most ways, in every way except one, she married you. But other than that, many of us married wives, you can think circles around us. You say, well, they're weaker. They're just, you know what it is, they're just, they, they just can't tolerate life. You try giving birth. One time, we would have absolutely no global crisis with population. We would have no global warming. There would be none of that because guess how many kids the average family would have if men were the ones who gave birth? One. That's it. I'm speaking very facetiously. So whatever this weakness is, it, 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 isn't, it isn't dealing with her moral standing, her spiritual standing, her, 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 her value to God. It, it, it is tied in this idea of vessel. And the way that Paul and Peter both use that term vessel is this. He, he, they use that term to describe and talk about the physical body. There is something about the way God designed the physical body of the woman that is different than the way he designed the physical body of the man. It's the idea of your body. So whatever this understanding is, Peter and Paul both use the word vessel to describe who we are and what we're like. We just saw in the little lesson we did with the kids that our bodies are described as clay jars, clay vessels. And so this is the idea. Whatever Peter is saying to husbands, he is saying to husbands, you need to know this about your wife in relationship to her physical body. So that means whatever the weakness is, that's where it is located in this text. All right? Are you with me so far? I'm not saying you agree with me. I'm just, are you following where I'm, where I'm going? All right? So that's number one. Number two, and this is, this is where I'm going to go out on my personal opinion, and you don't have to follow me. You need to be a Berean Christian, and you need to search the Scriptures and you need to go before the Lord before you just jump on board on an opinion. And, and you hardly ever hear me give you an opinion from the, the pulpit here, but I'm giving you one today and I'm letting you know that, okay? But I think it's an opinion that's formed out of this text. Whatever this weakness is, I think it was true of Eve before the fall. Whatever this weakness is, I think it was true of Eve before the fall. And if I'm right about that, this weakness is not sinful. It's not a flaw. It's not something broken in the design. I think whatever this is has to do with the perfect way in which God created Adam and the perfect way in which God created Eve. And I think some of the confusion comes in play when we use our English word weakness. We always think about it in terms of something that is deficient. 
something that is a flaw, something that is broken or about to break. There's something wrong with this, and, and at the particular point of weakness, there's, there's something missing, there's something that's potentially going to break, and so we have this idea of weakness that, that sort of is immediately bad. And there's no question that a lot of times when the Bible uses the term for weakness, that's what's in view here. But think about it this way. Let me, let me give you an illustration that might be a little different for you that can maybe help you think about uh, what, I'm, what I'm trying to express to you. Prior to the fall on earth and prior to the fall in heaven, God created two categories of moral beings and they were perfect in every way. One of them were, uh, was the category of beings that you and I know as angels, and the other was the category of beings that you and I know as humans. Which of the categories was stronger? Which inherently had a body that could do more? And the answer is what? Angels. Which one was morally inferior? prior to the fall? And the answer is neither. They were all perfectly acceptable before the Lord. And what's interesting is if you discover why God actually created angels with these amazing bodies that were unbelievably powerful and strong and could do things that no human body could do, the writer of scripture says the reason God created angels is so that they would be ministering spirits, serving spirits, Who were they supposed to serve? Well, obviously they're serving God, but in the text of scripture, they are supposed to serve who? Those human image bearers. So here's my point. Whatever this weakness is that Peter is talking about, I'm not sure it is an inferiority. I think it is built into the design, and it is is the idea that God designed uniquely this image bearer that we call woman in ways that reflect beauty and, and value. And as a husband, you need to recognize that. I used a dumb little illustration with the kids this morning but we have, we have this in life. We have this in other areas. We instinctively know that gold and steel are, are very different. One is stronger than the other, but one is more actually more valuable and more precious than the other. We instinctively know that. We instinctively know that you could take a fine piece of china or a beautiful piece of crystal And you don't treat that in the same way and you don't value that in the same way that you would value that cardboard or styrofoam cup that I pulled out of that bag to show the kids. And you instinctively know that the craftsmanship and, and, and the beauty and, and, and just the int- intricate way in which that crystal goblet or that fine piece of china, you don't take it out in the garage and use it as a storage unit for screws and nails and bolts and washers. Like you might take a styrofoam cup and put it in your garage. You know, if you're not, if you're driving down the highway, I don't know if you like to do this or not. I love sunflower seeds. Anybody like sunflower seeds? I think they are just one of the most amazing of God's creations. 
And especially when you can flavor them with all kinds of different things. And, and so you know how you eat a sunflower. You, you, you stick as many of them in your mouth as you can possibly tolerate if you're by yourself. If, if you're with somebody else, you got to be a little more civilized than that. But you stuff them in your mouth and, and you chew them and you move like one over. You get your tongue behind them. You move it over and you pop it open. There's like an art to this. You pop it open. You snake your tongue in there and you push that little seed out and then you do something with the husk. What do you do with the husk? You spit it out. Problem. Where? Do you spit it? And so when you, you know, I've just learned over time, every time you buy a bag of sunflower seeds, you try to, you know, cajole a, a styrofoam cup along with your purchase because you need a little place to spit them. This is, you know, you know, uh, never mind. I'm not going there. But I was going to say this is the Baptist version of chewing tobacco, but that's probably not, that's probably not a good thing to say in church on Sunday morning. Um, but, but you have that, right? You would never, what, what would you do if you were in a car with me and I had a $500 crystal goblet that I was spitting sunflower seeds in? You, you, would, you would have some thoughts going on in your head. And here, here's what I think Peter is saying when he's using that word weakness. He is saying to you as a husband, God designed an exquisite image bearer and the beauty and the value of that design is such that you have got to value that. You've got to honor that. You've got to prize that way more than you would prize this styrofoam cup. And... I think that's what Paul has in mind when he says to husbands, you should respond in light of this truth in a certain way. You should show honor to your wife. That's the idea of assigning value and treating with care and attention and tenderness and, and, and carefulness. And, and it's not just like you're trying to do this because you don't want to do something that's going to damage this person. You actually delight in the incredible treasure that God has given you. That changes everything. That changes everything. And just so we get the point, Paul says the reason this is so is that you are married to someone who is an exquisite example of the beauty of God's ability to create, but she's also an heir together with you in the grace of life. She is a fellow heir of the same eternal life that you have. She receives the same forgiveness that you received on her own independent ground. She has the same eternal destiny that you have. She enjoys the same standing as a child of God that you enjoy. She has the same inheritance. She has her own inheritance. It's not like she's married to you and you get the inheritance. You're like, okay, honey, hang with me because it's going to be good. She gets her own inheritance Even though she's been assigned by God to submit herself to you and to support your leadership and authority, it is in this momentary life only. It's only in this momentary life. She has the same access to God. Her accountability and stewardship is not to you, it's to God. She will rule with Christ independently from you. And if you remember what we said last week, part of our responsibility as a husband is to create an environment that is conducive to the work that God is doing in her to get her ready for her rulership. 
It's only in this momentary life and in this particular household where God has called her to arrange herself under the leadership of a husband that she supports and follows. Let me give you an illustration. Um, On May 8th, 2005, there was a 20-year-old young man who had a bunch of names. His first name was Henry, followed by Charles Albert David. And this man entered the British Army. His father is the Crown Prince of England. His grandmother is the Queen of England, Elizabeth the second, and in 2005, this young man went into the British Army as a cadet and later as a second lieutenant, and he served under a hierarchy of officers. Every one of those officers instinctively knew something. They knew that even though he may have been a subordinate, he merited unusual treatment, not so much different treatment from anybody else, but there was a recognition that even though for that moment he was under them, he actually was an equal, and in some ways there was a potential down the road that he would actually rule over them under certain circumstances if that would ever happen. And it had everything to do with who his father was. That is a really dumb illustration, but it helps us understand that the person we're married to has a heavenly father that you and I as husbands are going to give answer to one day for how we have conducted ourselves in relationship to this daughter that God has placed into our life. And I think that's why Peter ends this section when he says to husbands, so that your prayers be not hindered. In other words, he's saying to every husband here, when you fail to love your wife in this way, when you fail to grant her honor and value and treat her accordingly, it's going to hinder your own relationship to God. The word hinder there is a word that is often used in scripture to describe the process of cutting up a road. You've seen this, haven't you, when you've been driving down and then all of a sudden there's a there's barriers set up and you look past the barriers and their machinery and it's just torn up the road because somebody wants to put a pipe down or somebody wants to repair and the road is impassable. Well, in the ancient world, it wasn't tearing up asphalt, but there were times where roads were actually torn up and they were impassable. And basically, Paul is saying, and Peter is saying actually, that that a husband can live with his wife in such a way that it tears up the road between his prayers and God's ears. That's exactly why Peter says in verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. This should mark our relationships with everybody, but they should especially mark our relationships with our wives. Have unity of mind, have compassion, have brotherly love, have tenderheartedness, and a humility of mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you would inherit a blessing. And then he says this, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears 
are open to their prayers. Gentlemen, God takes this so seriously that he tells us if we don't value our wives and dwell with them in this way, he sees it. And when you open your heart and you cry out to him, the road that your prayer is traveling is torn up. You say, well, pastor, what do, what do I do? What do I do? Well, the first thing you do is if the road is torn up, you know it. God isn't hiding this from you. So if the road is torn up between you and God, it's probably torn up between you and your wife. So what do you do when you have a torn up road? You say, well, I know what I do. I'll find a detour. There are no detours on this road. So what you have to do, gentlemen, is you have to repair the road. You've got to take the time and you've got to humble yourself. Remember those things? Compassion, humility, unity, all of those things that were in verse 8. God says you've got to sit down with this incredible image bearer that God has given to, to you, and you've just got to clear the air. You've just got to say, honey, I, I haven't. I haven't. And I'm sorry. Would you help Would you pray for me? Would you pray with me? You've got to repair the road. And then you've got to turn away from evil. It's not enough to repair the road. You can't keep ripping it up every other week. We can repair it tomorrow and then turn around and rip it up two weeks from now and we're back where we were. So it's not just I've got to repair the road. It's Lord, I've got to turn away from the things that are tearing up the road. And you know, one of the ways that can happen is if you actually have an honest conversation with your wife and say, honey, what are the things I'm doing that are tearing up our road? You say, well, man, that's hard. Can I just say to you, when your marriage falls apart, it's harder. It's harder. It's harder. Turn away from what's tearing up the road and then seek and pursue shalom. I love that text. Let him turn away from evil and do good and let him seek peace and pursue it. Why? Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ear is open to their prayer. We started back with Paul and Paul's whole point is that marriage is to be the display of shalom. God created marriage because he wanted a human illustration, an institution, a human illustration of an institution that would be shaped by shalom. And Paul says to us, now go pursue that. Go pursue shalom. Stop tearing up the road. Repair the road. Stop tearing up the road and pursue intentionally and thoughtfully and in a unified way with your spouse, shalom. What are the things that we need to be doing together that will make our home a display of shalom. And they're going to be different for everybody. They're going to be different for all of us. You say, well, you know, what if, what if I'm in a second marriage and I already blew it? There are, this, this is not conditioned on 
the marriage you used to have. This is instruction for the marriage you have now. That's the marriage God wants you to be. That's the marriage where God wants to display the shalom. And that's the marriage that God has called you to live for his glory. So with God's help, let's do that together, shall we? Father, thank you for the text of your scripture, your word that speaks truth to us. Lord, we have looked deeply and frankly and honestly at what you have said to us as husbands and what you've said to us as wives. And Lord, I think I could speak for all of us. We are overwhelmed, number one, with thankfulness that you've given us this wisdom. But secondly, we're just overwhelmed with our own weakness. Lord, we know that apart from you, we have no prayer of doing this. And so that's why, Lord, we're so thankful for verse 8 through 12 of 1 Peter 3. Lord, you are attentive to our praying. You are aware of our weakness. Lord, we are not sufficient. But your spirit gives us the grace and the strength and the enablement not just to repair the road and to guard the road but to actually travel the road together in ways that will manifest your shalom to a world that needs it. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.